We're living in an age when a high priority is placed upon achievement and success. Through social media, our failures, whether a new recipe or a career choice, are often hidden or spun into successes. For some people, external motivation seems to be demanded. Every day in cubicles and offices around the world, you'll find posters with soaring eagles or people surfing huge waves or standing on the summit of some remote peak. And there'll be slogans like, Determination defeats failure. It's not the destination, it's the journey. You're not failing when you're trying your best. None of these proclamations are even remotely true. Determination is an attribute, it's not a guarantee of success, and trying hard just means you're trying hard, that's all. A failure is not transformed into a success just because you tried hard. If you set out for a destination, then the destination is the success. You can have a nice time along the way, but you haven't succeeded just because you're on your way. The destination is the goal, and achieving the goal defines the success. And just trying is not succeeding. If you have no skill or no ability and lack true determination and ambition, you can try all you want, but you will fail. Now, I'm not saying failure is the end of the world or even should be the end of your quest, but failure is in no way a form of success. We've become obsessed with success, but we also secretly love to watch super ambitious people fail. Some watch auto racing for the crashes, and we watch big wave surfing for the wipeouts, but we seem to admire the best, but after a while, they make us feel inadequate, and we get tired of being faced with what we believe is our own mediocrity. So we post small things like a picture of homemade soup on social media, and we tell ourselves that this is as good as the person who swam the English Channel or ran across Canada by himself. We never seem more than a few attempts and a few years away from being astounded and then once again bored and dismissive by any achievement. Running the four-minute mile, the land speed record of 763 miles an hour, breaking the sound barrier in an airplane, going to the moon, all these things were big deals until a couple months later when they weren't. Now Mount Everest has always been the benchmark for things that seem hard and unattainable. Even now, people use Everest as a metaphor for things that are really hard and seemingly impossible. In 1933, Maurice Wilson was ready to take his obsession to the highest mountain on Earth. This season, we're going to take a look at the man known as the Mad Yorkshireman and his obsession to be the first human to stand on the summit of the highest mountain on Earth. My name is Jeff Fargin, and this is the High Adventure Podcast. Season 2 and Episode 1 of the High Adventure Podcast. In Season 1, we looked at the 1977 Yosemite pot plane crash and the impact that event had on the local climbing community in Yosemite as well as the economy of California. If you haven't listened to Season 1, I hope you'll go back and give that one a try. Season 1 was a huge success. I'm thrilled with all the people around the world who took a listen to that and contacted me and sent me questions and comments and gave your five stars on all your podcast catchers. I really appreciate that. 
I wanted to follow that season up with an equally compelling story, and I think we found one. I know it's been a while between seasons, and I heard all of your comments and got all of your emails about when season two is going to start. Well, here it is. I apologize for it taking so long to get this thing off the ground, but it took a while to do the research on this one, and we have a few other projects going on that we'll be talking about a little later in the season. We've got a new website. We've got a new web series. There's another podcast coming out. Lots of stuff in the works that we'll keep you up to speed on as those projects develop. Our audience has continued to grow, and that's exciting. We have listeners in over 75 countries now, from Finland to Mexico and Lebanon to the Cook Islands, South Africa to Morocco to Japan and Brazil. We've got listeners in all 50 states. I want to thank you for listening, and we're working on a few things that will help enhance our output this year, including the launch of an additional podcast, as I mentioned before. As always, I'd appreciate if you follow us on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram and keep posting those reviews. Those five-star reviews really help us. They push us further up the recommended list, and that helps us grow our audience. And we'll continue to post our shows on both Vimeo and YouTube. Both these channels are under our company name of Accidental Productions if you're searching the web for those two channels. As I mentioned at the outset, we're going to tell the story of Maurice Wilson. Maurice was a bold, bold guy and very determined. And I'd say he was actually obsessed with being the first person to summit Mount Everest. Not necessarily one of the things that was high on a lot of people's lists back in 1933, but for Maurice, this was the deal. But his lack of experience in really anything involving adventure travel and mountaineering to him seemed unimportant. But this was a time when exploration fever was very high all around the world partly due to air travel becoming more available. The world was logistically getting smaller, but it was still a very dangerous place in a lot of corners of this planet. Let's just take a minute to put ourselves in Maurice Wilson's shoes. This was ultimately what his plan was. Now, if you had never climbed a mountain or piloted a plane, do you think your dream might be to fly to Mount Everest in a self-modified biplane, flying over restricted airspace without permission, and to fly through storms over open ocean, only to find that you're prohibited from entering your destination country that you must get through to achieve your goal of climbing the world's highest mountain? Most of you probably would say no. I don't want anything to do with anything like that. I want a beach and a drink and a mild breeze. But Maurice Wilson was a different kind of a guy. Now, in 2018, there were approximately 800 climbers that attempted to climb Mount Everest. And about 500 of them made it to the summit. 300 of those were Sherpa guides. More than 4,000 people have summited Everest since 1953, and about 300 have died trying. And that number continues to grow, both in successes and in deaths. The chances of dying on Everest for an experienced climber in 2018 was about 7%. But if you have no skill, no training, no talent, then I would say your chances of dying are 100%. But before we launch ourselves into the dangers of traveling the Himalaya, let's get our bearings on the time and place of Maurice Wilson's story. The Gregorian calendar says it's 1933. The Bengali calendar says it's 1340. The Korean calendar has us at 4266. 
the calendar used in Nepal, it's 1989, or 57 years ahead of our Gregorian calendar. The Tibetan calendar is a little more complex, and it's based on lunar cycles and a bit of math hijinks to get the dates. So the Gregorian 1933 becomes 2059, or 1678, or 906. The word or between the numbers is the official and accurate reading of the Tibetan calendar. So try to figure that one out. I gave it a shot. I'm just relating the news. I, I couldn't wrap my mind around how they got to that. So we'll call it 1933. So we're all on the same page. While Maurice Wilson was fasting and developing an idea of climbing an unclimbable mountain, the Gestapo was established in Germany and Adolf Hitler was made dictator. The first concentration camp was opened at Dachau, and later that year, Hitler declared his intentions for a state-sponsored people's car, which you know now as the Volkswagen Beetle. While in 1933 in Japan, a machine gun was demonstrated which fired a thousand rounds per minute. That was going to have serious ramifications about eight or nine years later. In the UK, physicist Leo Szilard came up with the idea that nuclear chain reaction was possible, and later, with Enrico Fermi, decided that an atomic bomb could be made with uranium. Wiley Post became the first person to fly solo around the world. In the U.S., the 18th Amendment was created, and prohibition was repealed, and the Depression was at its worst year, with unemployment hitting 25%. Work on the Golden Gate Bridge began, and Alcatraz became a federal penitentiary. Albert Einstein immigrated to the U.S. from Germany, and the World's Fair opened in Chicago. That 1933 World's Fair also hosted Dr. H.H. H. Holmes, known as the first modern serial killer. When we come back, we'll begin the story of Maurice Wilson and the obsession that could and would take his life. I assume you're listening to this podcast because you enjoy a good adventure story. Along with the High Adventure podcast, Accidental Productions has produced a number of films in the web series El Cap Bridge, which features discussions with famous and not-so-famous climbers that hang out in what's called the center of the climbing universe. Our feature film, Assault in El Capitan, takes you up on the second ascent of Wings of Steel with legendary big wall climber Emmett McNeely as he tries to solve the mystery of the most controversial climb in Yosemite history. A climb that involved lies and deception and even attempted murder. Assault on El Capitan is available on streaming services and platforms everywhere and is free on Amazon Prime. Now back to our story. Welcome back. Maurice Wilson's quest began in the county of Yorkshire in the UK. In 1933, George V was king, and the diagram for the London Underground was introduced to the public. The average price for a house was about 500 pounds, and the average yearly salary was about 143 pounds. The average car cost almost 300 pounds, nearly the same price as a house. But in 1932, Maurice Wilson was in a decline. He was having a hard time finding a purpose and a balance in his life. After a couple failed marriages and the onslaught of serious depression and some symptoms of tuberculosis, Maurice was at a crossroads. 
He was looking for a corner in his life that he could turn and find some sunshine once again after many years of darkness. Today we'd call what Maurice's condition was as depression. He was certainly suffering from PTSD or what they called in World War I as shell shock and later in World War II they called it battle fatigue. But no question Maurice was in a fight, battling demons both internal and external. In 1932, Maurice met a healer, and that meeting would change the trajectory of his life. The healer advised Maurice to fast for 35 days. He was only to take a few sips of water each day and to pray to God to be reborn. He followed the advice of the healer to the letter, and at the end of the 35 days, he emerged with a new perspective, and he was mentally stronger than he'd been in a long time. So he set off for the Black Forest where he would continue to recuperate and try to regain the physical strength that he'd had before the war. For the first time in many years, Maurice felt peace and happiness. With his high spirits at a level that he'd not experienced in many years, he felt that his mission to spread this feeling to all of mankind. That's a lofty goal. But Maurice combining his mental rebirth and his physical rehabilitation felt like this was in his wheelhouse. Maurice was concerned about the suffering and misery that existed in the world. He was aware that it would be difficult for him to spread his message that he himself had found the answer for anyone who was struggling physically, mentally, emotionally, or spiritually. This was a guy who fasted for 35 days, recovered in the Black Forest to a level of which he thought was a very high level, but now felt the need he was going to spread this message to everyone. But how was he going to do that? What he felt he needed to do now was to tell the world that he'd found the answer. He was nearly 35 years old. He felt that he was at the peak of his mental and physical condition. He had some physical problems, and we'll get into those a little bit later, but I wouldn't exactly call the condition he was in a peak of anything. So, in a cafe in Freiburg, he realized that what he had to do now was to focus his physical and spiritual awareness for the benefit of the rest of the world. He would do this by doing some sort of demonstration to inspire everyone. And he felt that the best way to do that was to climb Mount Everest solo. That was his goal. And that's what he thought would inspire the entire world to shed themselves of any mental impairments, any spiritual questioning, and any physical disabilities that they would have to overcome. This inspiration and this effort was what it was going to take. If he could succeed, it would demonstrate to the entire world the power of his faith. Now keep in mind that there had been several large, well-funded expeditions to try to summit Everest. All had failed, and all had come with a tremendous loss of life of the best and strongest young mountaineers in the world. Previous to Maurice's attempt, one man had tried to climb Everest solo. In May 1929, E.F. Farmer, who was a young American climber from New Rochelle, New York, set off from Darjeeling in what could only be called as a suicidal attack on now I'm going to butcher this name. This is the 
third highest mountain in the world. Kangshinhunga is what I'm going to call it. I know that I butchered that pronunciation, but it was the third highest mountain in the world, and at 28,000 feet, it was in the same neighborhood as Everest. Anyway, Mr. Farmer headed into the clouds and was never seen again. But did he make it to the summit? Probably not, but no one really knows. We'll talk about George Mallory's attempt on Everest in a later episode and the controversy surrounding that attempt and the possibility that he'd made it to the summit some 30 years before Hillary was credited with being the first to summit Everest. But that's a controversial topic, and again, we'll talk about that a little later. Maurice Wilson's life journey began long before he decided to conquer the world's highest mountain. 1933 would become the year that defined not only Maurice, but also his philosophy and his spiritual path. Climbing Mount Everest is a monumental undertaking, even by today's modern standards. Only the elite few climbers ever think of climbing Everest alone. And only the elite of the elite actually attempt to climb Everest alone. In 1933, it seemed like a completely insane scheme that might pop up in a dream or after a long night in the pub. Maurice Wilson never dreamed about it, and as a teetotaler, never went to the pub. His plan was simple. Fly to Tibet, land on the mountain's lower slopes, then continue on foot to the summit and make history. Maurice, however, had no climbing experience. He was not a pilot, and he'd never flown a plane. But Maurice felt that climbing Mount Everest was his destiny and that God would guide his feet up the Himalayan rocks and across the glaciers to the highest point on Earth. 1932 was the year Maurice Wilson made his decision. And in 1933, he began his quest that would take him to the slopes of Everest in May of 1934. The 1930s press had already dubbed him the Mad Yorkshireman. During the summer of 1932, Maurice returned to England from Germany's Black Forest. After years of despair and aimlessness, Maurice's friends were relieved to see that he seemed to be cheerful and claimed to be fully restored both mentally and physically. He was on a high and eager to tell his friends and anyone who would listen about fasting and his belief in its purity and strength effects. He also had a new faith and believed that this newfound strength and his rediscovered faith would lead him to the summit of Everest, and the byproduct of that accomplishment would be to inspire people around the world to pursue their dreams. That's a noble, noble effort. But would it work? I don't know. Are you inspired by other people's achievements? Maybe. This was a very bold statement by Maurice. It was a noble effort and desire but maybe relying a little too much on the power of faith to get him through the life-threatening situations he's going to face on really one of the most hostile environments on Earth. His friends were concerned by Maurice's desire, but uh, they were encouraged by his focus and his newfound determination. They supported him every way they could, but they recognized the enormity of this challenge. And perhaps they were figuring that he never really would get to the mountain and face any real danger. After all, he was in England. He had no experience. His plan was to fly this plane and climb this mountain, and he didn't have any experience in doing any of that. So maybe they just sort of placated him a little bit. And it might seem like flying to a mountain, landing, and walking to the top is an outrageous idea, but remember the times. 
This was 1932, and after World War I, when planes had become a weapon and were now a real tool in society, it seemed that this might be a reasonable way to attack such a monumental task. Wealth and confidence had increased following World War I, and men and women were flying to distant and exotic locations within days, when previously these journeys took months when traveling by sea or overland. The people of the time who had experienced World War I, both on the front lines and in support of that war, they felt empowered. Some felt they could do anything. And others felt that after the trauma of the war, they had cheated death. and They had nothing to lose and were in some way invincible. Maurice had a bit of both in him. He had that determination that was brought out by his time in the Black Forest and further by the healer he'd met and convinced him to do his 35 days of fasting. But it's hard to know what was real in Maurice's life, and what was a manipulation. By manipulation, I mean both by others and by his own mind. His service in World War I was certainly a contributing factor in his behaviors, and also perhaps a cause of his troubled life leading up to his journey to go on this quest to be the most famous mountaineer of his time. Maurice Wilson was not always a thrill seeker, nor did he have any particular desire to lead or inspire people. Maurice Wilson was born in 1898 in Bradford, England. His parents, Mark and Sarah Wilson, had four boys. Mark was a principal owner of a wool manufacturing business, and as a successful businessman, he'd hoped his sons would all go into the family business, where he started his apprenticeship in his father's business in 1914. Things were all going for everyone as planned, and everyone was healthy and successful and happy. But that changed in 1916 for the Wilsons as it did for a lot of families. In 1916, Maurice turned 18 and enlisted in the 5th Battalion of the West Yorkshire Regiment. If you're not up on your World War I history, there are a few podcasts and now a couple of movies that'll give you a good taste of what it was really like. Dan Carlin's Hardcore History has probably the most extensive retelling of the events and the conflicts of that great war. There's also a great film on Netflix called They Shall Not Grow Old, was directed by Peter Jackson, who'd previously directed the Lord of the Rings series. Restored and remastered original footage and some first-person narration. It's hard to imagine that this war was actually fought in the way it was waged. The stories coming out of World War I alone could give you PTSD. Not to mention what it must have been like for those really, really young men who, according to their governments, were disposable. These poor guys were ranging in age from 14 to their very early 20s. In 1917, Maurice was promoted and commissioned as a second lieutenant and sent to France to fight. He was sent into the bloody quagmire of the Battle of Passchendaele. Passchendaele is what British historian A.J.P. Taylor called the blindless slaughter of a blind war, where bodies of the dead were used as stepping stones and the rats grew fat on human flesh. These images are well-documented, and they're horrific. Maurice fought hard in this five-month battle, 
Remember, he was 18, with less than a year of military training at this point, and leading a group of young men through what must have looked and felt like the apocalypse. His bravery had won him a military cross, when after all the men around him were dead, he single-handedly held his position against what was called a fierce enemy assault. A few months later, during the same battle, Maurice was hit with a burst of machine gun fire. The bullets ripped through his arms and chest. Though close to death, he was evacuated and he recovered and went back and served as a captain in his regiment until the armistice. Maurice was left with a weakened and partially immobile left arm that would give him pain for the rest of his life. And as we spoke of before, he battled tuberculosis and at one point had a nervous breakdown. This was all before deciding to take on the greatest adventure of his time that would, in his mind, inspire the entire world. The emotional pain he suffered was unknown, perhaps even to himself, but he seemingly spent the rest of his life battling that trauma, that psychological demons that possessed him. And he those drove him. That was the fuel that made him take one more step. Like George Mallory and other people who took extreme risks at the time, now we call them extreme athletes. In previous times, they were called daredevils. The soldiers who returned after World War I brought home with them a terrible intimacy with death, almost a comfort and perhaps a lack of fear surrounding it. Returning to his home in Bradford after the war, Maurice felt disconnected from the people who had not served in the trenches or seen what he'd seen. He felt separated from individuals, but society itself in what poet Herbert Reed described as a great scene of horror and violation that left veterans feeling like exiles in a strange land. He was 20 years old. The 1920s were a difficult time for Maurice. He became isolated and became a curious figure everywhere he went. He spent some time in America and a couple other places, but ultimately he landed in New Zealand where he'd hoped he'd find peace and would be able to settle down with a family. In our next episode, we'll take a look at Mount Everest as a destination and examine Maurice's transition from small business owner and family man to daredevil and with ideas of becoming an international inspiration. Just like my old man, he told me so. Lying on his deathbed, watching the picture show. The product of the night, the bottle and some smoke. A boomer's tricks and a woman's hope.